This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. Today we're focusing on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. Last week, our team attended the Surface Naval Association's 34th National Symposium called The Competitive Edge. This is the Surface Naval Association's first-ever fully hybrid conference that includes both virtual and in-person events. Navy service members, including Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro and defense contractors, attended the event. The symposium had over 90 exhibitors with more than 3,000 in attendance. At the symposium, we spoke with Admiral Carl Schultz, the Commandant of the Coast Guard, about the latest initiatives in his service. Here's a look at that conversation. Admiral Schultz, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mimi. It's good to be here with you. Okay, so the Coast Guard has a unique um, set of um, capabilities, authorities. What is it that you guys do around the globe? Yeah, Mimi, I I think... You sort of got to look at home and away game. And I think home game here, you know, in the in the homeland, we uh, rescue mariners in distress. We enable about $5.6 trillion of annual economic activity through 360 seaports, through uh, 25,000 miles of navigable waterways. You know, on a more global scale, we're doing counter-narcotics work off of uh, South America, Central America. We've got ships on a more frequent basis deployed in support of the Indo-Pacific Commander's Theater of Operations, the 7th Fleet. We're in the high latitudes, the uh, Polar Security Cutter, not Polar Security Cutter, but the uh, Polar Star, our one heavy icebreaker, arrived at McMurdo Station in, in Antarctica yesterday. So they're down there. They broke about 40 miles ice to get there. They're allowing the uh, replenishment ship with cargo. They're allowing the fueling ship to get in there to allow the important science work that the National Science Foundation does. We're off the African continent. Um, we've got men and women about 300 strong that stand to watch in the fifth fleet in Manama, Bahrain on the Arabian Gulf. So we're very much a global Coast Guard, and there's a lot of homework, you know, homeland work here. So there's a lot there. A lot there. Let's yes, talk right. about the Indo-Pacific. Okay. How are you supporting the Navy in areas around China and Taiwan? So there's there's episodic work where we sail maybe a national security cutter, the Cutter Monroe, which bases out of Alameda, California, return here weeks back um, from a 102-day patrol. So she was there. She did a Taiwan Strait Freedom of Navigation transit with a with a combatant from the United States Navy. They did a reciprocal 180 degree out course. We did partner capacity building with the Philippines, Malaysians, Indonesians. So we do a lot of when you look at maritime forces, a lot of um, naval forces around the world look more like the Coast Guard than the United States Navy from a size, from a capability standpoint. We exercise a new memorandum of agreement with Taiwan. That was penned in March here by by our service in the Taiwanese Coast Guard. Um, when you sort of roll it beyond the cutter presence, we've got um, liaisons. We're putting a new attache in Singapore this summer. I've got a Coast Guard commander that's with the Philippines. Philippines is building out their Coast Guard. Does about 3,500 strong. Uh, you know, a dozen or so years ago, they're marching now. There's a recent report on MSN that talked about them going towards 75,000. They talked about a 35,000 per Coast Guard. So we are building out them. We work with the Japanese. We bring, we do about. 240 mobile training team deployments in about a five-year period. So we, we train thousands of, of partners in their home regions. Then we bring, you know, 1,000, 1,500 students from uh, international 
maritime services here to our schoolhouses. So there's a lot of stuff beyond just cutter deployments where we, we exchange humans, we exchange training, we share doctrine. There's a lot of different levels that international play works out in the seventh fleet. You're also modernizing. So you're modernizing ships, you're modernizing systems. Tell me about the shipbuilding. Is it keeping up with the needs that you have? Well, that's a great question, Mimi. I tell you, it's the most prolific shipbuilding period since the Second World War. Um, that said, you know, we're building offshore patrol cutters. The first one's about 60% complete. That's going to be a fleet of 25 ships and what we call the program of record. But that's replacing ships that are already 52, 53 years old on the oldest end of that. And they'll be almost 60 years before we get through that, you know, that 25 ship program record. So we're probably a little bit behind need, but I think there's a lot of goodness going on. We've uh, accepted the ninth of a, of, a, of a program that's going to be 11 national security cutters. The 10th and 11th are under construction down in Pascagoula, Mississippi. We're... Um, working with VT Halter in Pascagoula that's building the first heavy icebreakers the nation's constructed in more than four decades, what we call the Polar Security Fleet. We're a program record of three ships. I think there's a conversation beyond three. We've uh, just accepted the 47th fast response cutter down in Key West that's being built at uh, at what we call Bollinger Shipyard in Lockport, Louisiana. That's a program record of 64 ships, six Overseas is going to stand the watch in Manama, Bahrain, on the Arabian Gulf, 58 domestically. So a lot of good activity going on with our shipbuilding programs. We're going to do a, a contract award here in the spring for what we call the Waterways Commerce Cutters. Those are the ships that enable the activity on the nation's rivers and uh, various ports. That's, those are replacing ships. The oldest athlete 75 years old. And it'll be almost 80 years old before those ships come in place. So that's going to be a program of about 30 ships, three different derivatives. So a lot going on. And, uh, yeah, are we a little behind? But I would tell you, now we're on a sort of a steady pace. Um, the administration passed, current administration, the Congress seems to be uh, recognizing the urgency of this for the Coast Guard. And we, I think we're in a, good, in a good trajectory. You've also got a fleet of aircraft. Correct. What do you use them for and how is that modernization going? So we've got a fleet of uh, 148 rotary wing aircraft, about 47 what we call uh, Jayhawk MH60 Sikorsky airframes. Those are our bigger aircraft, a little more capable, five, six-hour profile. We've got a fleet of 98 Airbus um, aerospatial dolphins, um, composite aircraft. So they are they are rescue work. We deploy them on the cutters. So some of the dolphins ride on the back of national security cutter, medium endurance cutters, high endurance cutters. They shoot out engines on drug smugglers down uh, off the north coast of South America and the eastern Pacific Ocean. Um, we use those for uh, surveillance type work. You know, when you look at a Hurricane Harvey down in Houston back in 2017, you know, there's an air station in Houston that has three dolphin helicopters. When we rescued about 11,000 people from the streets of Houston over about a 48, 96-hour period of time, we had 48 helicopters flying almost around the clock down there. So we can surge them in from all over. We can surge crews in. And then we got a fixed-wing fleet. we got a fleet of uh, C-130 Js and Hs. We're, we're getting rid of the Hs. They're the older model. We're the 19th Js in the 22 budget. That's before Congress right now. We're building out a program at 22 there. Um, we fly these 235 Casas. Um, aircraft. It's a Spanish-made aircraft. It's a little, little lower-tech twin-engine plane, and we do a lot of surveillance work. We fly those out of Cape Cod, out of Miami, out of Corpus Christi, Texas. And then we have a fleet of 14 C1, C-27Js. That used to be Air Force um, that transferred over to us. We did a little exchange of some of our old airplanes with the fire service with some support from Congress. Coming next, more of my conversation with Admiral Carl Schultz at the Surface Naval Association's National Symposium. Stay with us.
Welcome back. Last week, we attended the Surface Naval Association's 34th National Symposium, The Competitive Edge. At that conference, I spoke with Admiral Carl Schultz, Commandant of the Coast Guard, about his goals for the service during his tenure. Here's a look at the rest of that conversation. So, Admiral, part of modernization is your talent needs. You're going to need to recruit people. Right. You're going to need to train people. You're going to need to retain those trained Absolutely. people. How are you doing on that? So I would tell you, Mimi, you know, when you look across America, there's about less than 25% of American youth have, uh, have the eligibility to serve for whatever criteria. Then you sort of look at the propensity to serve. That's been declining in recent years. It's probably, you know, 9 to 11% in there. So we're going after that same you know, shot group of folks at the uh, DOD armed services are, whether it's Space Force, Air Force, Marines, Navy, Army. Um, it's a competitive place. We need to put more mobility in our people's hands. These young Americans that do choose to serve, they're the brightest, you know, young Americans I've had the privilege of serving almost four decades, but they got a lot of choices. And, um, you know, when I came in, it was a defined benefit, two and a half percent. If you made it to 20, you got 50 percent, you retired. These young men and women that come in after 1 January 2018, it's now thrift savings you pay yourself you know at 12 years if you decide we offer you a couple months to stay so it's a whole different set of criteria so we have 90 percent retention the coast Guard, highest of any armed forces but we need people to be 15 20 30 35 year coast guard what's your pitch i mean what do you say to a young person i mean you know who might want to join the space force i mean that's pretty cool well, I'll tell you, what, what I think we say is we sort of let our brand speak for itself. You know, if you can get a, a young American who's interested in the services out to visit a Coast Guard unit, and our best recruiters are our frontline men and women that do the mission. You know, when you get talk to a, a young 21-year-old uh, woman who's driving a you know, multi-million dollar platform and she's in charge of it and she's got a crew of folks and she's out there rescuing people or doing exciting law enforcement work or environmental work, I think when you know, a young American gets a chance to talk to that, Coast Guardsmen, they say, I want to be on that team. And, you know, we we don't train to fight when something comes up. We train to operate every single day. So our missions are 365s, you know, uh, 52 weeks a year. And I think that's the part of the brand that's attractive. But you got to spend some money and you got to be in different cities. We made some reductions in recruiting years back. So we got to put some more recruiters out there because it is competitive. We got to spend a little money in terms of bonuses and things. And uh, for us, our pockets sometimes aren't as deep as our DOD counterparts. So we really got to press in on uh, going to find those. Once we find them, there's a high propensity to stay. You've been commandant since 2018. Correct. One June 2018. Yep. What are you most proud of? You know, um, boy, it's been a, when, when I reflect on the last, you know, three and a half years, a lot's happened. You know, we've we've been in this almost 24 month pandemic cycle and Coast Guard work did not diminish one bit. Matter of fact, we were sending national security cutters, medium endurance cutters off the coast of Columbia doing uh, counter narcotics work. We were rescuing folks, you know, uh, the economy when when there was, uh, you know, the pandemic sort of hit the cruise industry. You know, there was thousands of passengers, crews at sea. Some of the landside facilities were worried about bringing them in, filling up their hospitals. Every one of those was a was a diplomatic you know, local involvement of uh, port authorities, of hospital officials, of government officials. I'll tell you, I, I think I'm most proud of the resilience of our people. And I think Coasties come with a bias for action. You know, they just put me in coach and uh, you get out of the way, you give them the resources, they get it done. But it has not been an easy time to be a man or woman in uniform. If you're on a ship these days, you know, one of the benefits, accoutrements of going to sea was seeing the world. Now you pull into a port, you get fuel, you get groceries. You might get a little liberty on the pier. We maybe sign a memo where you can crack a beer or two and you know sit around and tell some sea stories. But they're not getting the 
go out to Monte Picchu and trek around Peru. There's sort of been constraints. So I'm hoping that opens up again because I think that's the, the benefits of going to see, you know. You're one of the speakers at this conference. Correct. What are you trying to accomplish while you're here? So I spoke earlier today and I spoke a little bit about from the commandant's perspective of the Coast Guard. I think it's an era of Coast Guards. You know, a lot of the navies and Coast Guards of the world are, are much smaller than the United States Navy. I think we play a, a niche role where we can come in and, and build capacity. I think we have a certain brand that connotates, you know, maritime governance. We, we adhere to the rules-based order. When you see a Coast Guard cutter, white hull, orange and blue stripe, most of the Coast Guards of the world mimic us. But I think what we do is we we walk the talk too. You know, some Coast Guards are being used aggressively to chase folks off of disputed spaces. The United States Coast Guard doesn't just bring a reputation, we bring the behaviors that go with that. And I think uh, what I tried to talk about was how we are positioning the service to be most useful to the nation as sort of a unique instrument in national security on that genre. We got our domestic home business I talked about, homeland work, but it's how do I put as much Coast Guard in the fight, whether it's off the African continent where food sustainment, illegal fishing's happening by, you know, other nations that are sort of violating. How do we build capacity? Many nations, you know, just aren't necessarily looking to have big deployable navies, but they want to protect their economic interests, their environmental interests, their safety of their people, their security. That that looks like Coast Guard work to me. All right, well, Admiral, thanks so much. Thank nice you, talking Mimi. to you. Yeah, great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Up next, we hear from some conference attendees from the Navy about the latest modernization initiatives underway to support the mission in 2022. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Last week, our team attended the Surface Naval Association's 34th National Symposium called The Competitive Edge. At the conference, we spoke with some attendees who are paving the way for innovation and advancing the Navy's mission. Here's a look at a few of those discussions. Hello, my name is Lieutenant Sky Pollock, and I'm with the Navy Integrated Fires Element out of Nyack, Colorado at Buckley Space Force Base. Our primary mission is to enable over-the-horizon targeting for our shooters, so we uh, use different types of overhead assets to analyze and um, find our different signals and emitters, and we take that data through our special processors. We're able to strip down just to what we need and process it at a much faster rate and get those target quality tracks out to our shooters so that they can employ their weapons at range. And we're able to go with a multitude of sensory to shooter and enable that full um, find, fix, track, target, and engage spectrum. And then we're also able to provide some bomb hit indicators after the fact um, to see and help aid the picture of mission success. So um, on our watch floor, um, one of the primary things that makes Knife unique is that we have our ELINT analysts sitting right next to our comment analysts that are sitting right next to our imagery analysts. So all the tracks that we look through at Knife are looked at um, through the lens of all three uh, different analysts so that we can get the highest fidelity possible and send out to the fleet exactly you know what ground truth is for those tracks exactly where they're located and again that's at um, the fidelity of target quality data so it's not just a common operating picture where we think something's in a certain area we have a very um, confident location and uh, to the highest fidelity possible of what that track is we're able to work with um, Navy ships 
On our watch floor, we have uh, Navy sailors, we have Marines, we have Army, and we also have uh, Coast Guard and Air Force that all work on the floor simultaneously together in different analyst positions. So we're able to go after missions that aren't just Navy missions, but we're also able to support um, in a pretty joint realm as they bring online different types of capabilities and stuff. And uh, we are still uh, an IOC command. We're not quite certified as FOC yet. We're working towards that very soon. Um, well, part of that process is switching um, our watch floor uh, to that mindset of being FOC. So we're continually in research and development. NIFE itself is the Navy side, um, the operators, if you will. So we work um, under Fleet Cyber Command, but we're in partnership with TET, Tactical Edge Targeting, who is the art research and development side um, funded by OpNav. So in partnership with TET, anything that they want to grow, try new, uh, we add to that and we're the operators on the floor. Afternoon, my name is Tom Van Lunen. I'm here representing the U.S. Navy's Military Sealift Command. Uh, we're headquartered in Norfolk, Virginia with 1,500 people ashore and 5,700 civil service mariners at sea. Uh, what, what differs us probably most from most other organizations in the Navy is we operate 125 ships for the Navy, all using civilian merchant mariners, both uh, government service, civil service mariners, and contract mariners who work for companies that operate some of our ships. Um, we're located uh, throughout the world. We have um, commands in Singapore, Bahrain, uh, and Naples, Italy, as well as San Diego and Norfolk. And those 140 ships we operate for the Navy and the U.S. Transportation Command uh, do both sea lift for Transportation Command. Those are the large ships that carry the Army and, and the Marine Corps forward to uh, overseas when they need to be there. And then we support the Navy with a variety of ships, the most Familiar is the combat logistics ships, which supply food, fuel, resupply uh, bullets to our combat combatants at sea, both allied and U.S., and then a number of support ships that do everything from, from soup salvage to dive training for the Navy SEALs. I'm Stephanie LeMay. I'm a public affairs specialist for Naval History and Heritage Command. We're based out of the Washington, D.C. Navy Yard, and we're here today at the Surface Naval Association Symposium. Just to remind everybody that we are the Navy's uh, we are the Navy's institutional memory. We are the ones that keep track of everything that the Navy's ever done. We do lessons learned, we do archives, we do shipwrecks, we do imaging, we do deck logs. Anything that you've ever wanted to know that the Navy has done in the past, that's us. So we actually work for the Department of Navy. We're here today, we've got our model of the USS Bunker Hill, which had the first vertical launch system. So in keeping with what Surface Navy does, this is a big deal for the, for the Navy back in the day. So we brought us a nice little model here on loan from Carterock. And we've also got some historical publications with us today, too. So that's, that's what History and Heritage does. If you want to see more content from the conference, visit our website, govmatters.tv. And if you want to see any of our past programs, we post every episode of Government Matters on our website, as well as on our YouTube page. We'll be right back. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.
stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C.
Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.